I came into Essence with a lot of armor on me around just protections that you built up. Like every time you do a layoff or you have to fire someone, you, it just takes a little bit of your soul away from you. And in essence, they just hadn't really had those types of challenges yet. I mean, there's, there's different challenges for sure. But I felt, within working in essence in my first two weeks, I felt like I had lost about 30 pounds. And it was all just protections and baggages that I'd built up over the last, you know, 15, 16 years of working for companies that, you know, had always just been in, in challenging moments. I'm Trine Patek, and this is Starting Out. Today's podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special powers that makes their craft so remarkable. On today's show, everything may not be politics, but everything is certainly political. Our guest on today's show is Christian Joel. Christian is the global CEO at Essence. A political science major in college, Christian is a systems nerd who sees modern work as being inherently political, from running a company to building consensus and avoiding factions. But depending on who you are and what you make of it, it can feel like baggage or liberation. How Christian went from starting out during the dot-com bust to rising through the ranks and landing at a scrappy office at Essence on this episode. I was born in Guam, and then we moved to New Hampshire, and then moved to Alaska, and then we came down to Sacramento halfway through grade school, so into fourth grade. And so, you know, you move around a lot like that, and you start to figure out either you're, you're not going to have any friends or you're going to be real good at making friends. If you ask my father, he would tell you my first job, and when he knew I was born to be in some sort of sales type function it was in third grade when we lived next to a field that was between us and my school. And I used to, on the way to school, catch lizards, blue belly lizards. And I just put them in a little shoe box or whatever. And I would sell them at school. How much did you sell them for? Um, I believe I had variable pricing in the early <laughs> days of auction. Nice. Um, but uh, the only reason anybody ever found out about it is because the principal found out and then called my parents and said, you know, you're not allowed to sell things at school and your son's been selling lizards. Um, and so they, they stopped my very short career as a reptile salesperson, I suppose. I was probably a pretty average student in most things. Um, most set the bar by my sister, who's now a pediatric neurologist in, at the university in Salt Lake, who was a perfect, perfect student, you know, physics major, doctorate degrees. And so I think my mom bet me that I couldn't break a 3.5 GPA average in high school. And I, I beat it somewhat, but not, not Tell overly. me a little bit about just sort of going through university and then sort of, you know, landing into kind of professional job. Um, walk me through some of that time. I actually took a year off between high school and college and did some traveling and ended up in Miami Beach. So I remember living in Miami Beach and writing college applications on a pencil on the floor of a studio apartment. And I got an UCSD um, and thought I'd be a doctor, actually. And got in my first year university, um, loved being in La Jolla, and realized after I took my first bio class that I really, A, didn't enjoy sciences, and B, maybe subsequently, therefore, was very poor at them. Uh, so I quickly changed over to political science and really fell in love with it. What about it did you fall in love with? There's a um, an element of it that, that talks about how the world is sort of structured and, you know, why systems have grown up the way they've grown up and how people think about things. And, you know, there's a certain element of understanding persuasion within it, um, the idea of communication and certainly, you know, the idea of laws and why rules exist, how rules can be changed to benefit, you know, certain outcomes. 
I think all of those things are really fascinating. When you get into you know the modern political era, you know it's never been more interesting right now to have a basis in something like that. Did you find that that kind of applied to professional life later on? I mean, you know, people, everything, I think politics is really interesting because everything is political. Um, and a lot of a lot of things in modern work are political. I know that kind of comes off as a pejorative in some ways, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I learned about politics as much as I would say I learned about systems and, and organizations and how they relate to one another. And I think now, you know, running a company that's, It'll be almost 2,000 people this year. You know, you understand how factions are built and how consensus is, is created and how delicate it is um, and how important it becomes as, as organizations grow. And I think, you know, that that's certainly has something that's been you know, brought forward from early learnings. But I would say, I hate to use that, that old adage, but, you know, I think it's all about learning to learn. And, you know, that starts much earlier than university. Good habits are formed and bad habits are, are created as well, I suppose. But you know, I think that's really what it is, is can you maintain the curiosity and, and the desire to keep thinking? Um, and I hate to say it, but I, you know, I'm raising my own 10-year-old son right now. That's mostly what we spend our time talking about is sort of you know, maintaining, building the muscle for curiosity and, you know, exploring. How did, how did you start kind of thinking about the learning to learn is becoming something that's a part of your life and something that, you know, lifelong learning, like continuing to do that. I don't have a lot of reluctance towards trying new things um, or starting over. And I think, you know, when I, and then I took that sort of gap year, I ended up in Japan for about a month. Um, and I fell in love with Tokyo at the time. And so when I actually finished university, so I had a basically worthless political science degree. So knowing that I love Tokyo, I actually applied for a program called Japanese Exchange Teaching Programs, JET program as it's known. And it's a program that the government puts on to take university students over and embed them in local schools to teach English. And so I did that without really, again, I wanted to travel after college, but I didn't really have any money to do so. So this seemed like a good compromise in terms of, you know, you got a couple of months off, you could base yourself in a pretty amazing destination and do something I knew how to do pretty well, which was speak English. Um, so I took off right after university and went to this little town called Yonazawa. Uh, but I did that for about a year and a half. And then um, it was an amazing experience. Got to explore a lot of Asia at an early age. Got to work in a foreign culture. Um, Yonazawa was a town of about 100,000 people. I was one of two native English speakers in the town. Um, the other gentleman was a textile exporter from uh, South Carolina. And unfortunately, he and I didn't even really get along. So I, I found myself, you know, and then I came back and it was, you know, right in the middle of the dot-com boom. And my dad had left the Air Force sometime before and it started a computer networking company um, in the early, early days of sort of um, PC lands and, you know, internet kind of very, very beginning of, you know, dial-ups. Uh, so he was reselling computers at the time back before went direct and he made an introduction for me for a company called GE Capital, which had a large computer services and, and reselling business. And I got a job there. Um, we were, I went in for an interview. His name was Gary O'Neill. I had on my very best suit and tie, which was to say it was my only suit and tie. Uh, my sister bought me for a graduation present. And he asked me what I wanted to make. And I said, I guess $28,000 a year sounded okay. Where had you gotten that number? He looked at me and said, I have no idea. Um, I was not well prepared for him to make me a job offer on the spot. 
I only subsequently realized why he was so desperate for people. But um, he said I couldn't live on that, so he, he paid me $35,000 a year for my first job. And it was suit and tie. I had to be in the door by 6 a.m. every day and work until about 7 p.m. every day. It was an interesting place. Um, did that for a few years, and then they actually had a um, – computer services group that did outsourcing for, you know, like GE generally does, it was GE Capital. They decided they could do a whole help desk and e-commerce business or sort of procurement-based e-commerce uh, for all your IT systems. And they kind of, at GE, build these nice marketing materials as they were putting a bid together and um, unprepared, but uh, somehow serendipitously, I, I ended up selling this massive IT infrastructure and services outsourcing project to Levi's, which kicked off two and a half years of my life out of Levi's Plaza. So many people that we've had in the show, you know, have talked a lot about sort of having experience in services business and how important that was. I mean, some of them had happened when they were, I don't know, more on the sort of the pr prior to their professional careers jobs. Some of them made it a point to make sure they worked in services. Um, but all of them often tell me that there have been sort of lessons they've learned that, especially now that they're in marketing and media are completely so important. Do you remember kind of that shift and was it difficult to make? Do you have any memories of kind of something, I don't know, something that didn't go as well at the time, something you weren't as good at that you had to then learn? Well, when you're talking about services industries, I guess I would bifurcate that into two areas. There's certainly, I grew up, you know, waiting tables and bartending and all that kind of stuff. And you learn a lot of important lessons in that area. I think moving into a services world, you know, you really have to start thinking more about you know the complexities of how things work together and you add the human interaction in and the variability in that is so massive um, that it's, it's a much more challenging job you go into levi's all of a sudden you know in this case we we're outsourcing six different data centers all the desktop it support for i still almost remember 3624 employees at that time and I think you also just learned like it didn't it didn't work. GE wasn't ready for something of that size at that time. So I remember the day we opened up the call center. I won't use his name, but there's a local guy here in San Francisco, and I still see him around town sometimes, uh, who was my client on the on the support side. And I remember him coming into my office. I was about 26 years old, running this 100 person team, and he came into my my office with. Right, he had a big mustache, just bright red face, screaming at me. And he goes, "Yesterday, when I ran the support desk, you would have an answer within 20 seconds. You'd have your response time because we had an average response time of 20 seconds." He goes, "I want you to walk down to my office." I walked down to my office. He had a big clock behind his desk. He goes, "I've been on hold for an hour and 24 minutes with your call center." Oh God! Oh God! And it was just, I, and the guy that ran it was in Atlanta. He was a great guy, and it just we weren't ready for him. And you just realize, like, you know, how quickly it is. You have to be able to admit mistakes and true failure and how fixing problems becomes more important than getting it perfect right away. And, you know, it's all those kind of things, I guess, are good basis for where you end up in life. A quick break to tell you all about Digiday Plus, which is our premium membership product. You should join our community if you want to get a first-hand look at how digital is transforming the world of media. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invitations to lots of exclusive member-only events. And it's only $3.95 a year. You can sign up at Digiday.com. And for you, for listening to our podcast, we have a discount offer. If you want 25% off your subscription, enter the code starting out at checkout. Now, back to the episode. And then had the opportunity to leave that company after a few years and go over to kind of my first internet sort of job, which was US Web. Um, 
and started, you know, on kind of the e-commerce side there and customer service and sales. And that's, you know, ultimately the company that became Razorfish, but you know, lived through the dot-com bust. What was that like for you, the, the, the bust? I mean, where sort of where were you exactly at that time? Did you sort of see it coming? Um, and what did you think after, like, when it happened? I mean, did you consider, okay, this internet business not for me? I mean, what was what was it like for you as an experience? I had never been part of a massive growth organization or part of something that was really where, you know, the, the just the incredibly rapid rise um, that was, you know, other companies were experiencing in the Bay Area, and so when I went over to US Web, it was it was fascinating to join a company like this where you know you just notice the small things right away free meals happy hours every night after work um, average age of a workforce being in their 20s um, you know the first company meeting somebody wrote out on a Harley Davidson and gave it away <laughs> I mean, it was just this incredible time and then you know I was in the, the biz dev team for a while there and you know I just remember we would go into these meetings we had an 8 a.m. standard business meeting every day and the forecasting was done by headcount because there was endless demand at the time. So this was when you know startups were getting twenty million dollars on napkin ideas, and um, so no, I, I'd love to say I was you know so visionary that I saw the collapse. I mean, in hindsight, now it's obvious, but I'll never forget even. Mar so it became March first. U.S. Web merged with a company called Whitman Heart, and they formed this ten thousand person Uber digital consultancy agency. Um, you know, we had 2,000 people in San Francisco alone, and it was a billion-dollar business. And, you know, as the clients obviously started to fall away in rapid succession, um, his name was Bob Bernard. And I ran into Bob in the hallway, and I said, Bob, I was just on the last earnings call, and, um, you know, we've taken $150 million from San Francisco partners, and things sound pretty rough. I remember he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, don't worry, ship's this big, don't go down. Um, we'll be just fine. And a month later... We filed bankruptcy, laid off three quarters of the employees who hadn't already been laid off, um, and the whole company went into base receivership. And we were bought by a a portion of us were bought by a company um, that was backed by Cerberus, and eventually became a company called SBI and shed the whole name. And they took basically client contracts and, and key staff and moved them over to that organization. And SBI provided sort of the the lifeboat that kept yeah that kept support you on. But I mean, you can't imagine. How terrifying that was. I, I think March 1st in particular probably had one of the worst runs of all of it. I mean, there were people that, families that were having babies that were, that were you know, denied medical benefits because March 1st hadn't paid the premiums in some time, unbeknownst to the employees. Um, I remember taking my paycheck to a place that would do payday advances on checks because I didn't think we had three days for the check to clear. Um, it was not a graceful exit. I mean, did you, was there a point at which you thought, like, I quit, and I don't mean just quit what you were doing, but just maybe there's something else, maybe this internet business, you know, not for me, I don't I don't know what's going to happen, all these, you're seeing all these things happen around you. What was kind of your thought? Because you were kind of riding this lifeboat in a way, too, out somewhat. Yeah. I know it sounds bizarre when you think back and, you know, you got all that chaos around you and you're worried about getting paid. And But somehow I was still having a good time. Um, I love the idea of creative and technology and media. And I thought the work that we were doing for clients was, was still important. I kept getting reassurances from people that, that I thought mattered at the time that things would probably be okay for me. And they subsequently turned out to be, be okay. You know, I knew 
how important the internet was, and I believed deeply in its ability to change lives and communications. And it just, I, I had no way of knowing how long it would take for things to turn around, but I did feel like things would get better. Um, I saw the irresponsibility of how some of the companies were run, but knew there was still good business in there. And um, SBI felt comfortable to me. It kind of was more of a return to the GE capital world of, you know, not free lunches and crazy extravagances, but a well-run company that was based upon real pipelines and, and client work. And uh, that felt comfortable. Yeah. So you, you know, you were at Raz eventually Razorfish uh, for a long time, 13 years, and then obviously you went on to Essence. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of watching the company just grow. Um, kind of what's been, I don't know, what's been the best part of it and also what's been the hardest part of it? So it's all comparative, right? I think you have to kind of close out a little bit on the Razorfish years and, you know, going from Microsoft into Publicis and then you know, moving in with the, the Digitas side and the change in leadership there. I worked for Bob Lord for a long time. And, um, you know, I think that was a challenged business and it really shaped a lot of my perspective on what needed to be successful. And so, so by the time I left there, I really formed this point of view that in order to be successful, at least on the media side, really needed very deep technical specialty to differentiate in a world where we thought, you know, platforms and automation will become increasingly important. And I didn't know where to, I would find that, but I, I just, I felt like Razorfish was, was going to go in a different direction. And, um, so I, I left and ended up meeting this company Essence only because they bought a friend of mine's agency in San Francisco to get their expansion. So I met the founder. And just basically shared that same story. He said, well, that's basically what we're trying to do here. We've got some incredible clients and good support. We've been private. And the first thing that struck me, I guess, once I took the job then, was the very first thing that struck me. They never let me into the office when I was interviewing, which kind of sort of reminded me as well. So it was a small town in San Francisco. And I, you know, I was never sure, really. I didn't want things getting out in advance, as you imagine, all that. But I was told we had temporary space on May. Lane. Uh -huh. San Francisco is a small, mostly known for sort of hair salons and um, what have you in the back of Union Square. But I had spent my first week uh, in London and then I came to San Francisco to the office and, uh, you know, I was only 20, 25 people at the time, but my buddy was still there, the guy who had sold his agency into it. And so I literally go up this back staircase. I think there was a piece of plywood holding up the door to the hallway. I go by, there's a jewelry shop on the right. There's like one of those straight out of a movie, like that flickering neon light that's in the hallway you know, as you go down. And then I look, I go to make a, a right turn into what I think is the Essence office. And there's about 20 folding tables from you know, Costco or Ikea. Everybody's packed in elbow to elbow to elbow. And I look across and I see my buddy, Eric, and he looks up and he goes, oh shit, Christian's actually here today. And I, I kind of go, hi. I love, imagine hearing, oh, shit. <laughs> that was my welcome to the office was, oh, shit, you're here. And he sort of slid his arm across the folding table and just with the, you know, moved down to the right, cleared a, about a five-foot space for me of, you know, paper and garbage and keyboards and goes, here, actually, I saved you one of the chairs that's not broken. And he flips a chair over to me, and that was my, my, my first day in the office. Uh, we've subsequently improved our employee welcome process quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but emotionally, the first thing that really struck me was just 
how different it was um, being a you know a founder led organization and a company that had really you know only had one blip during uh, 2001, but you know for the most part had just seen incredible growth um, for its entire existence and what that allowed them to do in terms of the people culture they built, the lack of politics and the focus that they had on, on, you know, product and technology and automation and this, this belief in a future that they were driving towards that just allowed everybody to be very singular in vision and culture. And what I found was I kind of, I, I tell the story that the town halls here when I go around, but I came into essence with a lot of armor on me around just protections that you built up is you're, you know, you're laying people off in this or you're, you're moving structures from this way to that. It's just it's a hard job to do in most cases, unless you build up some defenses in order to do the really hard things. You know, you mentioned in one of your other ones that one of the other people you interviewed just hates to fire people. And I think that that's true. Like every time you do a layoff or you have to fire someone, you, it just takes a little bit of your soul away from you. Um, and in essence, they just hadn't really had those types of challenges yet. I mean, there's, there's different challenges for sure, but I felt but then working in essence in my first two weeks, I felt like I had lost about 30 pounds. And it was all just, it's just baggage. those little protections and baggages that I'd built up over the last, you know, 15, 16 years of working for companies that, you know, had always just been in, in challenging moments. Um, not that we don't have our challenges in essence, but I, it was just a different type of challenge. And I found that incredibly refreshing and invigorating. How did you try and keep that kind of, Again, of course, there's always business challenges and all of that, but kind of keep that culture, you could call it culture, you can call it just sort of mode of thinking alive, you know, through the years since as, you know, Essence has continued to grow, you know, under new ownership, leadership, not really leadership, but ownership, making sure that sort of the essence of Essence <laughs> stays, stays that way, stays the company you remember when you joined. Well, I think, you know, I, first off, I tell that story a fair bit. Um, I think it's important people realize what it is. But I think, you know, we're very cognizant and vocal about our mission and our vision and our values. And while every company has those, um, I think it means a lot more here than words you put on a wall. I hope that they, you know, continue to realize that politics and, and um I guess as you get bigger, it's inevitable. The structures, you know, have yeah. to come into the company. But for the most part, we don't drive our decisions through those. We drive our decisions based upon our clients and where we think, you know, the future of this industry is going. And generally, I think that feels exciting to people. And, you know, also a massive focus on inclusion and diversity and a lot of people to really be themselves um, in, in any, any configuration. So I think all of those types of things and, and really demonstrating those values and beliefs every day is, is one of the most important things a CEO can do. Do you, um, do you plan your career? Are you a, are you sort of, do you ever think about, I don't know, the next 20 years, the next 30 years, kind of what you do? Would you have a third act? Um, how do you think about sort of your career in the future? I only plan my vacations. <laughs> my next one is going to Montana in, uh, in July. To go, uh, I go to a very small little place, sit on a lake with my son and some friends and fish for a few days and try and forget about the digital world for a while. Um, no, I mean, that's a good question. I, I guess I probably should. I, you know, I love what I'm doing here. And I feel like, 
you know, as, as long as I can keep staying interested and as long as they'll have me, um, you know, this is a, a really interesting place to be. And I, I love advertising. I absolutely adore the clients that we work with and the brands that, that we get to deal with. Um, and that just keeps getting better. So, you know, for me, I'm, I have a little brother also. And he'll get mad at me for mentioning this, but, you know, he he's always talking about how, you know, the new, the new economy. I guess I'm old economy somehow, um, but you know how the new economy labor is much more transitory, and how you know it's long to stay at a company for more than two years. And um, I like staying put. I think it's the growth and the perspective that Essence needs to to um, for the next step in its maturity as well. So no, I don't really plan my career that way. I think you know sooner or later I probably do something other than advertising. But um, unfortunately for me at this point, after 15, 16 years, it's the only thing I know. That's Christian Joel, and that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangol. If you like our show, please subscribe. And how you do that is rate us, leave us a review, and share it on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And we're also on Anchor.fm. I'm Shreen Patek. We'll see you next week.